In the, uh, in the book of Philemon, the, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to his friend, his comrade Philemon, and, and says of him that he is one who has refreshed the hearts of God's people. Whenever I read through that book, I, I pause there because I wonder, am I that kind of person? Do I refresh the hearts of God's people? I wonder if that's a question you've ever asked of yourself. Am I the kind of person that refreshes the hearts of God's people? I think one of the things that stands in the way of us being people like that is a biblical handling of the emotions. I'm becoming more and more convinced over the years now that, that it's possible for people to sit in great Bible teaching churches and hear great preaching week after week and have all sorts of great theological and doctrinal knowledge stored up in their heads, but, but the reason they don't make progress towards spiritual maturity is that their emotional lives have not been addressed. That's one of the incentives, one of the motivating forces behind doing this short series entitled Feel. Now, last week, uh, we looked at two unhealthy emotional approaches to avoid and three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to download the podcast or uh, pick up the CD at the Welcome Center because all three of these messages really do hang together. And if you're missing one, you don't have a complete picture. Today, we're going to advance the conversation. We're going to move further in our journey on this um, uh, in this topic. And we're going to look at these three things this morning. We're going to look at where emotions come from, understanding sinful emotions, and confronting sinful emotions. Where emotions come from, understanding sinful emotions, and confronting sinful emotions. First, where emotions come from. Last week, one of the unhealthy approaches we need to avoid that we looked at uh, is granting emotions sovereignty. The statement, I can't help the way I feel, is a mantra you'll hear often in our modern day world. As if emotions are an external force that impose their wills on us and we don't have any power to control that or stop that. But that statement, I can't help the way I feel, just doesn't hold water when it comes to the biblical text. Scripture looks at this a little differently than, than that statement would seem to indicate. And we looked at this in detail last week, and I'll refer you to those details in that message. But one of the passages we looked at to try to, uh, to get a sense for whether or not that statement, I can't help the way I feel, really matches or aligns with Scripture is John 14.1. Jesus himself is speaking, and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's a command not to feel a certain way. This word troubled is deeply emotional, and Jesus is saying his followers, his disciples, must possess some sort of power or control to push back against this emotion. We looked at the, the interesting fact that the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid. It's the most frequent command found in Scripture. It's deeply emotional. We're commanded dozens of times to rejoice or to be joyful. And so this idea that emotions are sovereign, that they just happen to us, doesn't hold water, according to the biblical text. So where do they come from? If they don't come from outside us, if they're not an external force that just happens to us, where do emotions come from? Let's look at what Jesus says to us in Mark 7. He says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. 
Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now let's think together for a moment uh, about some of these behaviors that Jesus lists. Notice, first of all, that he calls them thoughts, but they are behavioral. The question is, are they emotional? Are there emotions involved in these behaviors? Let's take murder. Does murder involve emotion? Now, the reflexive reaction to that would be, well, yeah, it must, right? But let's, uh, let's just pause. Let's think deeply about this. Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, he says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus makes it very clear. He's linking anger, the emotion of anger, with murder. What about adultery? Is emotion involved in adultery? Again, Jesus speaking in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus here links the emotion of lust with adultery. In fact, we could go through every one of the behaviors that Jesus lists in Mark 7 and realize that there is some kind of emotional bent to every one of them. He talks about slander in Mark 7. Slander literally means abusive speech. There is emotion built up inside that. What I want you to see is that list of behaviors is emotional. Now, where do they come from? Where does Jesus say they come from? When you look at the text, it says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that all these evils come. All these evils come from inside, Jesus says. So emotions come from within us. They are not external forces that impose their will on us. They come from our hearts. They are birthed from inside us. Let me take a minute just to illustrate this with thanks to, uh, to Paul Tripp. Watch carefully here. Bottle of water. Okay, watch carefully. One more time in case you missed it. Okay. Now here's the, I have a question for you. Why did water come out? Because you shook it. Okay, let me, let, me, let me phrase the question slightly differently. Why did water come out? Because that's what's inside it. It doesn't get any more profound than that, folks. Water came out because that's what's inside it. Listen, when life shakes you, what comes out of you was already there. When life shakes you, what comes out of you was already there. Circumstances do not put in us something that's not already there. Circumstances merely reveal what's already inside us. This is what Jesus is saying in Mark 7. Circumstances just reveal what's already there. This is where emotions come from. So let's look secondly at understanding sinful emotions. Let's look first at anger. Um, New York Times op-ed writer uh, Tom Kreider wrote a piece bemoaning what he calls outrage porn. In this piece in the New York Times, he writes this, so many letters to the editor and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. 
These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling, one, right, and two, wronged. But outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea rather than admit, than admit that it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. It is outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get us off on righteous indignation. Kreider is 100% correct with this. Here's a dirty little secret about the, the current state of American culture. Everywhere you go, you are encouraged to find things to be angry about. You're encouraged to be outraged at something and then to express that anger and outrage and to find pleasure in expressing that anger and that outrage. Kreider is spot on. But it's not just secular American culture that has a problem with this. There's a version of this inside the American church. John Piper calls it emotional blackmail. He writes this, he writes very articulately on it. He says this, not feeling loved and not being loved are not the same. Jesus loved all people well, and many did not like the way he loved them. I have seen so much emotional blackmail in my ministry, I am jealous to raise a warning against it. Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well, and the beloved still feel hurt, and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device is a great evil. I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry, and I'm eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. Emotional blackmail is the church's version of outrage porn. In the American church, there's something in the air we're breathing that's encouraging us to look for opportunities to feel hurt by people, whether they, or not anyone did the hurting. So whether it's the outrage porn that Kreider writes about or the emotional blackmail Piper writes about, how do we know if we're justified in the anger we feel and express? How do we know we're justified in feeling and expressing this anger? Anger is obviously not always sinful. God gets angry. Very interesting scene in Mark 3. Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. There was a man there with a shriveled hand. And the Jewish leaders were on the edge of their seats waiting to see if Jesus would do such a thing as heal on the Sabbath day. And Jesus was incensed at their posture towards this. Jesus got angry. He got angry. 
To put it short, righteous anger occurs when God doesn't get what he wants. I know what righteous anger is. Righteous anger occurs when God doesn't get what he wants. Put it differently. Righteous anger occurs when God's will is violated. That's righteous anger. But we need to be honest with ourselves here. Most of our anger does not happen because God's will has been violated. Most of our anger happens when our will has been violated. James writes about this, gets to the heart of it. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Anger is there's something out there that I wanted, but something blocked me from being able to get what I want. My will was violated. The result is I feel frustrated or irritated. It's sinful anger. What about fear? Anger can be kind of easy to spot. We tend to have a difficult time holding that one in. Fear, we can throw a blanket over sometimes. And we have all these culturally sanctified terms that we use in place of the word fear. Right? We don't come out and say, I'm afraid. <laughs> we come out, we say, I'm a bit nervous. Or, I have a concern. Okay, let's just rip the fig leaves off of that. It's fear. It's fear. It's worry. It's anxiety. The different kinds of fear in the Bible, right? There is a fear of the Lord, which the Bible calls us to, is a good thing. And I think the fear of the Lord is the fear that casts out all other fears. But that's not the only one out there. We fear people. We fear their opinions, their judgments, their criticism. We fear their way of doing things. And the flip side of that coin is we crave their approval. We crave their praise. We crave the ability to control them. There's also a fear of the future, fear of losing our health or our money or our job, a 401k, a relationship. There's no shortage of things to be afraid of. But I want you to hear inside fear's voice. It's very similar to anger. Fear makes a prediction about the future. It looks out there with longing for something and says, I want that, but I don't know if I'm going to get it. There's something I want, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Anger and fear are siblings. They're both rooted in, I have a will that I want to see done. My will be done. Anger expresses frustration that it wasn't done. Fear looks out into the future with doubt as to whether or not my will will be done. This is where the emotion turns sinful. 
How about unforgiveness or bitterness? Somebody might raise a question about whether or not unforgiveness is an emotion. The reason I put unforgiveness in with bitterness is that it's emotional barriers that prevent us from forgiving. Just be honest with that. Bitterness is the stink crop of unforgiveness. It's emotional barriers that prevent us from forgiving. Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, formerly known as Nancy Lee DeMoss, received a letter from a grown man um, whose father left him when he was two years old. And the last couple of lines in his letter to her really sum up the corrosiveness of bitterness and unforgiveness. He writes this, The hatred I carried for my daddy wrecked my first marriage and is threatening my second. I am a shell of a person. I do not have any close relationships. Pastoral ministry, I've seen this time and again. Oftentimes those who are struggling with deep isolation or struggling to forge any kind of meaningful relationship with other human beings are often struggling with bitterness towards someone from some past hurt. It's no wonder it's been said that unforgiveness and bitterness is like you yourself drinking poison in order to make the other person feel bad. Unforgiveness and bitterness really is the epitome of spiritual and emotional suicide. It will devour you. Now, what does the voice of bitterness sound like? They did something, therefore they need to pay, and I won't let this go until they have received a payment I approve of. That's the voice of bitterness and unforgiveness. I want you to understand that this is too is a close cousin to anger and fear. I want something but didn't get it, or I didn't want something and got it anyway. Therefore, the person who's responsible for this needs to pay. It's sin. So let's confront it. Last week, we talked about three emotionally stabilizing anchors to deploy to help create emotional health and spiritual vitality in your life. These three anchors are what we need to use daily if we're going to confront sinful emotions. So let me work through some of these to show you how I might do that. Anchor number one we looked at last time is the providence of God. Let's take the providence of God and rub it into our anger. Okay, emotions reveal desires. Emotions reveal desires. Anger says there's something I wanted but didn't get. God's providence is his ruling over the details of all activity, human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. So sinful anger occurs when I don't get what I wanted. But in that event, when I didn't get what I wanted, God has superintended over the details of lives and circumstances to see to it that I didn't get what I wanted. Do you see the conflict here between sinful anger and God's providence? When we get angry, we are indirectly protesting God's providence. We are indirectly protesting the way God has orchestrated the details of our lives. God is ruling over the details of all activity that led to us not getting what we wanted. From God's perspective, <laughs> this is where I wonder, when we're angry, does, does God crack a smile? 
from God's perspective, the thing that got us angry went exactly according to his plan. Let me say that again. From God's perspective, the thing that got us angry went exactly according to his plan. And our anger is an expression of protest. So listen, every angry moment you experience is a battle. It's a battle between your desires and God's providence. Where you end up emotionally depends on which one prevails. Deploying the providence of God in your angry moments gives you the best shot of experiencing peace. Tim Keller once tweeted out a quote that I have made part of my daily battle against ungodly emotions. He said this, if you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he says. If you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he sends. So that thing that you got or didn't get that made you angry, you would have asked for if you knew what God knows. Anchor number two, future glory. Let's take our future glory, let's rub it into our fear. Emotions reveal desires. Fear says there's something I want but might not get. One of the many fears that we battle against is people. We fear people's criticism or rejection. We perceive they have power to give us something. Or to put it differently, we think people can bless us. And we crave the blessing, the strokes, the pat on the back. We crave that. We get addicted to these strokes. And the flip side of the coin is that we come to have a fear of not getting them or getting their opposites, criticism or rejection. So how can I rub future glory into this craving for people's approval and this fear of being criticized or rejected? How can I rub future glory into that fear? Let's take Ephesians 1.4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every Every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. So if you are a Christian, you have already been blessed in the heavenly realms by the God who gives each breath to the people you fear the most. You've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. One of the root causes to our fear of people is that we perceive the blessing they can offer us is greater than any other blessing available to us at that moment. That verse tells us that that's hogwash. We have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What more do you want? Several years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song called See the Glory. The chorus, I think, illustrates the ridiculousness of craving the fickle approval of people over relishing the definitive approval of God. The chorus goes like this. He says, I'm playing Game Boy standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Okay, so it's dated a little bit. Game Boy. 
How do you explain an eight track? Uh, so you're playing Candy Crush in your smartphone while you're standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Okay. I'm eating candy sitting at a gourmet feast. I'm waiting in a puddle when I could be swimming in the ocean. Tell me what's the deal with me? Wake up and see the glory. See, when you rub future glory into your fear, you begin to have a different outlook on things. Having someone speak a word of criticism to you is like getting your Game Boy taken away while you're standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Not a huge deal when you think about it. Having someone reject you is like someone taking away your candy while you're sitting at a gourmet feast. Again, not a huge deal when you think about it. This is what it looks like to rub future glory into your fear. It puts your fear in perspective. What about the last anchor? Justification. Let's use our justification. Let's rub it into our unforgiveness and bitterness. Emotions reveal desires. Unforgiveness and bitterness say, I wanted something but didn't get it. Or, I didn't want something, but got it anyway. Therefore, the person who's responsible for this needs to pay a price. It's the voice of bitterness and unforgiveness. When somebody wrongs us, we're, we're robbed of something. We perceive that we're robbed of something. Maybe it's happiness or reputation or an opportunity or certain aspects of our freedom. And when we're wronged, we have a sense that the perpetrator has incurred a debt they must pay. The debt can't just be willed away. It can't be swept under the rug. It's always there. And there are only two ways to respond to it. One way is to seek to make the perpetrator pay for what they've done. You can withdraw from the relationship. You can cut off the relationship, penalizing them. You can wish some kind of pain in their lives. You can viciously confront them, using your tongue to wound them. Or you can go around to others, tarnishing their reputation. And if the perpetrator, under that scenario, if the perpetrator begins to suffer, you begin to feel a bit of satisfaction. But listen to me, if that's the route you take, if that's the route you choose to take, I guarantee you will become harder, colder, more self-pitying, and more self-absorbed. I guarantee it. You'll become less human. The other way to respond to someone who has robbed you of something is to forgive. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they've done. However, refusing to make them pay and choosing instead to forgive is pure agony. Forgiveness is suffering. Why? Because forgiveness means bearing the cost yourself. It means loading up the debt on your back and carrying it yourself instead of making the wrongdoer bear the cost. It's suffering. God had these two options as well. When we robbed him of his due, he could justifiably lash out and make us pay, or he can forgive. The cross shows us which route he took. 
On the cross, Jesus is choosing to pay the debt himself, to bear the cost of our wrongdoing rather than make us pay. By choosing to pay the debt himself, we have been granted God's acceptance full and free. So listen, in order for you to forgive, in order for you to let go of bitterness, you have to rub your justification before God into your wounds. You have to go back to the cross again and again and gaze upon the heinousness of your sin that put Jesus there and ponder the lengths he's he's going to to deal with it. Because the degree to which you've been forgiven, you will forgive. The degree to which you have been forgiven, you will forgive. This is what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. To the degree you have received God's acceptance, even though you violated him, you will grant acceptance to those who have violated you. So what do you want? The question silenced the rest of the courtroom in post-apartheid South Africa. And the frail black woman rose to her feet to answer former security officer named Vanderbrook had just confessed to the murder of her husband and son. The officer had come to her home under the cloak of government authority and shot her son point blank. Then he burned the young man's body while he and his men partied nearby. Later, the officer returned and dragged the woman's husband from her home. She did not hear from him for two years. Then the police returned one night She was taken to a riverbank where her husband, still alive but bound and beaten, was heaped on a pile of wood. He was doused with gasoline. His last words, Father, forgive them, as the fire was lit. She remembered it all as a member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission now addressed her in the courtroom. So what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, she replied. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. My husband and my son were my only family. I want secondly for Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend the day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I have remaining in me. And finally, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus died to forgive. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom 
so that I can take Mr. Vanderbrook in my arms, embrace him, and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants led the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbrook fainted, overwhelmed by what he had just heard. I don't know that I could do what this elderly lady did. But one thing is for sure. She is rubbing her justification in Christ into her wounds of bitterness and is forgiving an extraordinary debt. And do you know what the result of that is for this woman? She's finding incredible freedom. So what Lewis Smedes led Lewis Smedes to say this. He said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. Let's pray. Loving Father, we desperately want to experience freedom from these negative emotions that make us miserable and they make us unholy. Give us the grace and strength to learn to rub your providence, our future glory and our justification into each of them. And as we do so, God, I pray that we would begin to see transformation unfold in our lives. God, I know this is a battle, and for some, this battle is fresh. Maybe it's at its peak even now. I pray you would encourage them. Encourage them with your Spirit's presence. Give them direction with your word so that they know they're not alone and they're not going at this blind. You are with us every step of the way. More than anyone, you, God, want to see us changed into the likeness of your son. And so we pray for that. In Christ's name, amen. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people said,